Want to go ahead and read the thing? I do. In the late 1920s, Russian mineralogist Leonid Kulik hired a handful of local guides and trekked into the Siberian taiga. As geological expeditions go, this one was rather straightforward. Deep within the forest, an area the size of metropolitan Tokyo had been flattened in a violent explosion some 20 years before. All Dr. Kulik and his entourage and guides needed to do now was follow the felled trees until they came to ground zero. Dr. Kulik had spent his career and much of his political capital asking for this expedition. He'd made several trips to the area and collected dozens of eyewitness accounts from the Russian settlers and, and indigenous Siberians living within the blast zone. Their stories were eerily similar. On June 30th, 1908, there had been a bright spot in the sky descending against the rising sun. It trailed a long plume of white smoke, and as it disappeared toward the horizon, a series of bangs had sounded in the distance. The air had grown very hot, very suddenly, and then an invisible force pushed people off their feet, blew tents over, killed reindeer and dogs, set dry brush on fire, and shaken the ground in what felt like an earthquake. The Orthodox Christians thought it was Armageddon, while the Evenki people blamed Ogdi, their god of thunderstorms. But to Dr. Kulik, the stories added up to only one possibility, that a rare and very valuable meteorite had fallen in the forest. As he made his way to the center of the site, guided by the bare, charred tree trunks lying in neat rows along the forest floor, he must have felt as though he were close to the breakthrough that would delight the government and establish his career in one major discovery. When Dr. Kulik and his expedition finally reached the center of the blast zone, there was no crater to be found. In fact, the marsh surrounding what had to be the epicenter was peaceful and flat, with no evidence whatsoever that anything at all, much less a 60-meter asteroid, had ever fallen to the ground. The trees told one story, the witnesses told another, the scientific evidence in front of Dr. Kulik's own eyes contradicted both. And over the next hundred years, the mystery would only get stranger. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the Tunguska event. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Impact Event Analyst for Relative Disasters Space Laboratories. And I'm her brother Greg, Chief Meteorite Finder for Relative Disasters Prospecting, LLC. Fantastic. That I love that for you. Today's episode is about the Tunguska event, an explosion that really calls into question everything we understand about meteorites, impact events, and I don't know what you want to call it, uh, sudden explosions? Yeah, sure. This is actually something I've been wanting to talk about since we first began this podcast. Yes. Oh, was it three years already? Oh, God. <laughs> three years ago. <laughs> um, but there's just not much out there about it. On no. one hand, you can tell this story in four minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, a thing happened. <laughs> yeah. Nobody really knows what happened or why. <laughs> and so I really had to do some digging. And this is like an assemblage of different articles and books and things that are very badly translated from Russian. Okay. So we don't have one main source. It's just kind of a 
collage. Um, but those will all be in the show notes. So today, Greg, yeah. since it's the middle of the winter, why not go to Siberia? I mean, Siberia is lovely. I don't think we've actually been there on this podcast before, have we? Uh, no, no, not yet. We're going to eastern Siberia, and we're going to the Tunguska River Basin. The Tunguska flows through eastern Siberia through an extremely dense subarctic forest ecosystem. So think lots of trees, lots of winter. Sure. Kind of wet. Okay. Not a lot of people. Right. Uh, a lot of bears. Yeah. I don't are, have a sidebar for you, but... <laughs> are there are there more bears than people in Siberia? Is that... It's very rich in bears. I don't mm. think so, okay. um, but there are a lot of bears. Now, in 1908, this part of the world is under the control of Tsar Nicholas II yep. and the Russian Empire. This is the very last of the Russian Empire. It's yes. not going to last much longer. Nope. Uh, you want to do a sidebar on the Russian Revolution? No, I don't. I super don't. <laughs> there are two of them. Yes, in succession, and they both were awful. Yeah, and uh, the Tunguska event happens right in the middle, like right between the two. So the reason why it's not investigated and reported on immediately is because there's no standing like, government. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so in 1905, we have the first Russian Revolution, which yep. is, you know, a result of unrest against the reigning czar. Fair. And although Nicholas manages to hang on to the monarchy for a few more years yeah. after this first revolution, it becomes really clear that the vast majority of Russians are unhappy with the system. Yeah. So at this time, Vladimir Lenin has just formed the Bolshevik Party. Mm -hmm. um, that would go on to take power away from Tsar Nicholas and the yes. empire completely in the next revolution, which happens in 1917. So where we're at in 1908, the Russian army is fresh out of the Russo-Japanese War. Yep. Um, but in Russia itself, there are widespread labor shortages. There's a famine. Um, I, yeah. I came across this again and again. Disillusion with the government. I mean, yes, obviously. Well, not being able to eat is, uh, yeah. is a, a good way to lose faith in your ruling. And part of the problem is in Western Russia, there's arable land, but it's there's less and less as the cities get bigger. Um, and then on top of that, you have these kind of civil unrest protests that frequently turn bloody. Yeah. So it's just, it's a very... It's a fraught time. It is a fraught time. We don't say that enough on this podcast. No. So in Siberia, way in the east of Russia, things are actually pretty peaceful because at this point, there are only a few small cities and there's plenty of food because there's a lot of fertile land. Right. Uh during most of the year. <laughs> yes, uh, during parts of the year. Parts of the year. <laughs> it's Siberia. So, right. You know. It's a lot less populated than Central and Western Russia. And although it's been under Russian control for hundreds of years at this point, the locals are not necessarily big supporters of the empire or of politics in general. Sure. So the people living out here are a mix of farmers who are being resettled into the area. Okay. Uh, we also have indigenous native tribes, including the Avenki people. Yep. And political prisoners, because Siberia is where the gulags are. Yep. Around 7 o'clock in the morning of June 30th, uh, which confusingly is also June 17th by the calendar used by the Russian Empire. Um, so these dates get a little fuzzy. Okay. But it was definitely 1908. <laughs> okay. Either end or mid-June. 
Okay. So seven o'clock in the morning, enough people are up and about in the area to observe something extremely strange in the sky. So eyewitnesses hundreds of miles apart describe the same phenomenon, which is a line of smoke extending across the sky with a glowing ball at the head. Yep. This is visible for about 10 minutes. And then there's an explosion that sounds like artillery fire to some, uh, thunder to others, just a huge noise. Okay. This is followed by a shockwave, which stomps 830 miles of forest flat and sets it on fire. I'm sorry, how much? 830 square miles. Holy cow. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, two square miles would be impressive. This is this is on this a different is, scale. Yeah. Okay. And when you get into talking about this event, the size of it is what blows my mind. Sure. It's just an enormous, enormous explosion. Yeah. So people 40 miles away are being picked up and thrown. Jeez. And people 60 miles away are experiencing this sudden flash of heat so hot okay. that they feel like they're being boiled alive. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. People are seeing it. People are smelling it because Mm. the forest fire is extremely intense. Yeah. And it definitely, definitely, definitely people are hearing it. Yeah. So just outside the immediate blast zone, people and animals get knocked over. um, Glass windows get blown out and the ground shakes. I am going to read you some quotes. Yes, please. Two weeks after the explosion, the local paper reported the story from a village called Kezinskoye. Okay. Quote, on the 17th, an unusual atmospheric event was observed. At 7.43, the noise akin to a strong wind was heard. Immediately afterwards, a horrific thump sounded, followed by an earthquake that literally shook the buildings as if they were hit by a large log or a heavy rock. The first thump was followed by the second, and then a third. Afterwards, for five or six minutes, an exact likeness of artillery fire was heard. Hmm. After one and a half to two minutes, after one of the barrages, six more thumps were heard like cannons firing, but individual, loud, and accompanied by tremors. The sky at first appeared to be clear. There was no wind and no clouds. Upon closer inspection to the north, where most of the thumps were heard, a kind of ashen cloud was seen near the horizon which kept getting smaller and more transparent and possibly by around 2 to 3 p.m. completely disappeared, end quote. So this is the first kind of on-the-ground reporting. Sure. There was a big noise. Mm -hmm. There was a little smoke. No mention of the fire, though. Well, the fire would have burned out really quickly. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like we talk about some huge forest fires that kind of get going and yeah cause incredible destruction that was not this forest fire this is a very wet forest oh okay right Um, right, right. a lot of it is kind of swampy so the forest gets knocked over it gets like flash cooked and then it's it burns itself out okay okay Hmm. an eyewitness named vk pennigan who saw the event from about 300 miles away from the site described it as quote The fiery flying body was well seen. It resembled an airplane without wings or a flying sheaf. It was as long as an airplane and flew as high, but more swiftly. The body was as red as fire or a tomato. It was flying horizontally, not descending, and passing in front of the cliff of, and passed in front of the cliff of Simbale about two thirds of its height. 
Then the body covered some two kilometers more and made a sharp turn to the right at a very acute angle. End quote. Huh. I, I got nothing on that one. I mean, what? <laughs> so it was as red as a tomato. <laughs> yeah, that part I was I was very enthralled. That really with. stuck with me. I don't it's know why. The, it's the red as fire or a tomato. It's that, right. That's excellent. But the thing of the thing of it making a sharp turn is weird. Yeah, Does, that comes up a lot when it, you start talking about conspiracy theory. That was going to be my guess. Is like, are there any mm-hmm. one? Is it possible that this is a mistranslation? Two, is it possible that this guy maybe didn't see everything he thought he saw from 300 kilometers away? Mm-hmm. Uh, and three, did anybody else see this or make a statement akin to this? Yes. Okay. A lot of the witnesses mentioned that it kind of took a little turn towards the end. Huh. And I, I came across that in a bunch of different articles. So I okay. think okay. if it's a bad translation, it got repeated a they lot. They did it in every single um, one. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that But yeah, that's it. not how meteors behave, is it? <laughs> well. We'll just put a pin in that and come yeah. back to it. <laughs> yeah. So within a week or so, a meteorologist named Kulesh decided to investigate the event. Okay. As you do. And he went out into the countryside and interviewed anyone who was willing to talk to him. Now, what he found was that people who had experience in the military or who had relocated from a city or like witnessed any kind of military battle, they described what they had seen and heard in, I don't know, kind of industrial terms. They would say like, oh, it sounded like a cannon or artillery fire or the ground shook like a train was going by. Okay. But the indigenous people in the area spoke about the event in terms of storms and earthquakes. Okay. So here's how an Evenki witness described the event to Mr. Kulesh. Quote, in the early morning of the 30th of June, 1908, an interminable legion of Ogdi <clears throat> came flying down upon the lands of the Shanyagar clan and brought disaster to many families of the Shanyagar. Some tents flew off into the air higher than the forest, and the people sleeping inside suffered from bruises. From the herd of Andri Onkul, Atungus, 215 reindeer vanished without any trace. Other Tungus's dogs and some reindeer were killed. The storage platforms with bread and equipment were destroyed. The forest, a real ancient taiga, was flattened within a few seconds. Hmm. There was a tremendous thunderous noise which caused crevices in the earth. Owing to these impressions, the inhabitants of that part of the taiga fled in panic in all directions, leaving every last one of their belongings behind. All of this is blamed on the Ogdi, end quote. Hmm. Ogdi is their thunder god. Thunder god, yeah. So the idea is that someone has offended the thunder god and he's brought down this terrible, very strange storm. And he he did some smiting. Exactly. I mean, this has all the earmarks of a smiting. Of a good smiting, yeah, exactly. So here are some metrics to describe what we think the explosion was. Okay. So it's estimated to be the equivalent of four megatons of TNT. Okay. The shockwave was, like I mentioned before, an estimated 5.0 on the Richter scale. So there was a tremendous, when they say earthquake, they're not talking tremors. They're talking like knock your house over earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. It did happen over a populated area. Just not a densely populated one. Exactly. It was in a remote Siberian forest during this period of massive civil unrest. Yep. And despite these wild accounts from the eyewitnesses, it took a while for the rest of the world to hear about it. But when we look back and compare dates, we can see that people thousands of miles outside the impact site had observed phenomenon that had to have been linked to the explosion. Okay. 
So all across Russia and Europe, people noticed unusually light skies at night. Just for that day or for like days beforehand? Days afterwards. So we have this explosion. Okay. And then people suddenly start walking out in the middle of the night with enough light to read a newspaper by. Uh Now it's not a moon, right? Right. It's not an artificial light. It's just an unusually light sky in the middle of the night. Huh. Okay. Something about that just makes my skin crawl. If I wake up in the middle of the night in the country Mm -hmm. and the sky is bright enough to read a newspaper by, it's not right. No. Well, you know, my animal brain gets all agitated. Well, that's why people who live in the very north of Alaska can get some uh, some weird insomnia. Because there are a couple days where the sun won't set. Right. And that is a, a weird thing for us to try to deal with. So, yeah, but that's being able the to sun. Like you look up outside. into the sky and you see the sun, and yeah. the sky is light. No, this you know, is at just, least you know you where the light up. is coming from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, people in England observe what is described as kind of like an aurora borealis. Sure, yeah. In England, there's not supposed to be an aurora borealis in England. Uh, very unsettling. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Again. And astronomers at the Smithsonian, all the way over in America, noticed that the atmospheric visibility was way down. So we've got these light skies, but you can't see anything. Right, right, exactly. So they estimated that during the month of July, there was an extra several million tons of particulate matter in the atmosphere meaning that they could not see stars and planets very clearly. Right. If we put all of those things together, we can look at this phenomenon in a way that makes it seem like it was probably a meteor. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Quick sidebar for some of the different terms I'm going to throw at you. Oh, okay. Excellent. Love some definitions. So a comet is a body orbiting the sun on a long loop with a lot of velocity. Yes. Okay, so comets go whizzing by. Yep. Uh, An asteroid is a body orbiting the sun along with us. So we're we're right now in the middle of a whole crowd of asteroids just bumping along. There's a ton of them. Most of those are super small, but some of them can be quite large. Yeah. Uh, Occasionally, they pass by our atmosphere and fall into our gravity, and when they Mm -hmm. catch on fire and become visible, they're called a meteor. Mm Mm-hmm. So when a meteor hits the surface of our planet, yeah. whatever's left over from the descent is called a meteorite. And that's the rock that you can dig yep. out of the ground exactly. if you and are so blessed. And that is what holds the, uh, the impact energy. So if it's a very tiny one, it'll still hit like a bullet. If it's a big one, it can wipe out all life on Earth, like we discussed in the Cretaceous extinction. It's also going to be really hot. Oh, yeah, it, it'll be rather warm. <laughs> because it's just uh, fallen through the atmosphere. Yeah, it's weird. There's a bunch of friction up there, which heats things up for uh, for those physics majors out there. Atmosphere is so fascinating to me. <laughs> so now that we've got our terminology, I can mm-hmm. tell you that modern science thinks that the Tunguska event, because yep. that's what it's called, because it's not definably one thing or another. Right, exactly. Um, They think that the event was a meteor air burst, which is also called a fireball, which is when the meteor explodes within the lower levels of our atmosphere. Right. 
So if you think of like a shooting star that gets really, really low and does not end with a meteorite. Yep. Right. Because nothing's left over from the explosion. Right. All that energy breaks up within a few hundred meters of the ground, importing a ton of that energy downwards, but leaving very, right. very little to, uh, to find afterwards. Right. So you've got the heat and the explosion. Mm-hmm. You just don't have a crater. It's the fun of a meteor strike without a meteor strike. Eh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can say that. <laughs> um, and that would explain why Leonard Kulik didn't find a crater when right. he trekked through what, you know, what had to have been the center of the impact site. There's mm-hmm. hundreds of square miles of destruction, but right in the middle of there is this group of a few dozen trees that are still standing upright. They don't have any branches. They don't have any leaves. They've been burned, but they're still upright. And if something had actually hit the ground, his belief was that there would be a crater and not this weird patch of trees. Right. But, you know, there's a caveat. Yeah. At the center of the impact zone, the place where all those felled trees were pointing to, is not a forest floor. It's not a hillside. It's a bog, Craig. Yeah. It's a swamp. Yep. And remember, Dr. Kulik and all his instruments and his helpers didn't make it there until 22 years after the event. Mm -hmm. So it's completely possible, from what I read, that there are fragments of the Tunguska meteorite. They're just in a bog. Sure. You know? Yeah. And and water would have definitely been... um, like a uh, an impact absorber as well so for sure you would have those things would be shot through the water of the bogs and buried in the bottom of them and yeah maybe there's a few shiny rocks there for folks to go digging for who knows if so nobody has found them Mm. um they also might be incredibly small if this thing broke up in the lower atmosphere i mean we might be talking things the size of the head of a pin sure but they were looking very carefully. I mean, <laughs> yeah, one would anything. hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just a dude out there like scuffing his feet along the bottom. <laughs> um, I assume not. You know, like when I you assume. lose something in a pond and you, you don't want to go under and like reach with your hands or open your eyes. So you just sort of scuff your feet along to see if you can feel it. It's that. That's what I assume. You know. So I think they were... You know, the problem is that it's so wet and there's so little evidence left that they just, it's almost hard to know where to look. Oh, sure. They have this this clump of trees and then they have a bog that's, you know, enormous. (laughs) Do we know how big the bog is? It's big, Greg. It's It's just real big. big. Got it. Yeah. Got it. You wouldn't want to get lost in there. Okay. Cool. Uh, So to me, a meteor airburst makes sense, right? It fits the observations. Yep. But... As we know, I'm a layperson. I'm <laughs> on the dumb side. So I need to keep an open mind whoa. and tell you whoa, <laughs> that whoa, not whoa. everyone agrees with the existing data. Uh-huh. Okay. Can, can, I, can I hazard a guess? Go for it. Okay. I got two guesses. You ready? Guess, uh, number, guess number one. Okay. Aliens. I mean, obviously. obviously. Sorry. Guess number two, uh, super secret weapon. That like accidentally no. misfired. That yeah, one, I'd, I'd I like actually, that. I'd, I'd definitely. Do you are you a fan of Nikola Tesla? I am a fan of Nikola Tesla because somewhere else, I'm not sure where he was living at the time, 
Yeah, he was building something very, very sketchy. And um, he was testing it around the same time as the Tunguska event. And for a while, (laughs) there was a theory. Yep. Exactly. And it had burst out the other end. That's amazing. And uh, I I would love it, but I'd, I'd need some evidence. I'm sorry. Well, you know, to me, Tesla's work is so mysterious and so... You know, it's right on the border of like it, magic. Med science. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> this my is favorite, exactly. My favorite anecdotal story of of Tesla's work is that mm-hmm. one day one of his like he and one of his assistants were working in the workshop in San Francisco. And all of a sudden, San Francisco started to shake like another earthquake was coming. So his assistant braces himself in a doorway and Tesla walks over to this machine, flips a switch and the earthquake stops. And he just sort of goes, whoops. And goes back to work. That is my favorite uh-huh. anecdotal, absolutely no evidence to support it whatsoever, Tesla story. Because it's so on brand. It's yeah. so on brand, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, okay. So I hate to tell you that no scientists have come out and said aliens, and no scientists have come out and said definitely Nikola Tesla. Well, that's a shock. Which is what I'm waiting for. Because yeah. the science communities in. They don't want us to know. They don't want us to know the truth. Um, but there are <laughs> some interesting scientific theories. Do you want to hear some? Yes, I would love to hear some extra science theories. Okay, this is one that I absolutely love. And if you ever ask me about this event in person, this is what I'm going to talk your ear off about. Okay, Ready? bring it on. Some scientists think that the Tunguska event wasn't a meteor at all, but okay. a comet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because comets are faster and icier than meteors. Right. The idea is that it blew apart when it landed and left a spatter pattern instead of a crater. Hmm. Now, I love this idea because it means, Greg, yeah. that part of this swamp is comet water from outer space. Okay, see, that right? is very cool. That is super cool. Very cool. Can you drink comet water? Do we want to check this? Do we want to test this? Do we want to fly to Siberia and get it, bring a cup to this swamp? Yes. Okay. We also want to look at the fish, Greg. Ooh, maybe there are super fish. Right? Comet fish. I love this idea so much. That's a fantastic idea. Uh, however, however, I'm pretty sure (laughs) I have to tell you, this would be an incredibly rare event. We're constantly being bombarded by meteors. Yeah. Comet impacts are incredibly rare. The last time one hit the earth for sure was 28 million years ago. Yeah. So that, that really took the wind out of my sails, but I still love the idea. Just because it hasn't happened recently doesn't mean it can't happen. So it's. Two scientists at the Kerensky Institute for Physics in Siberia recently okay. made the argument that the Tunguska event was caused not by an impact at all, but by a meteor that entered the atmosphere at an angle and bounced off the denser layers of the lower atmosphere, maybe as low as 10 kilometers above the surface. Okay, see, that's cool. It bounced. Something that sort of like skipped off, like like skipping yes. a stone on water. That's exactly. A, that's a cool theory. So in this theory, the force... The speed of the comet and the force of the bounce sent it off with so much velocity, it escaped our atmosphere and scooted back off into space. Oh, you know what that explains? So many things. The sudden turn. Uh-huh. That's the It's bounce. all coming together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the bounce. Okay. Uh, this is a phenomenon known as a grazer. Right. And while they're rare, they're not unknown. Okay. Uh, this actually happens... <laughs> More than you might think. That makes me deeply uncomfortable, Ella. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't want that. It's just embarrassing. My understanding of meteors, (laughs) meteor behavior. um, Okay. Okay. A grazer. 
mm-hmm. actually passed over uh, the United States and Canada in the early 1970s. Oh, wow. So there are pictures. <laughs> it okay. definitely happened. Okay. All right. Fast forwarding to 2007, a group of Italian scientists went to Siberia to take a closer look at a strange little lake five miles from the center of the blast. Okay. Now, as we discussed before, this is a big, wet area. Lots of little lakes and ponds. Right. Okay, so Lake Checo is kind of an oddball lake. It's funnel-shaped, right? It's got a deep cone shape at the bottom. It's not flat-bottomed like every single other lake in the area. Right. And there's a lot of disagreement, Greg, about how old it is. Oh, no. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Some maps put it in the right area before 1908. Right. And others don't. Oh, no. Just a little blank spot. Yep. Mm. So the Italian scientists, when they looked at the sediments at the bottom of Lake Cecco, they thought it looked new, like it might be a crater. Okay. But 10 years later their Russian counterparts found evidence that although it's a strange shape, it's at least 280 years old, not 100. Ah, at at least 280 years old. And disappointingly, neither the Italians nor the Russians found any meteorites at the bottom of Lake Cecho. Okay, fair enough. I do love the idea of all these lakes being pretty much the same lake. And then having one that is dramatically different, but only if you look under the surface. So today, in this area of Siberia, the forest is continuing to recover. You can still go to this area and see knocked down charred trees, but they're, you know, obviously they're rotting away. Right. Um, And of course, new growth is flourishing thanks to all the carbon in the soil. The area is still sparsely inhabited, and it serves as a great place to study how forests recover from such an enormous event of devastation. Scientists go there to look at how a knockdown forest recovers from being knocked down. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. In 1995, Russia designated the 700,000 acres surrounding the site as a Zapovednik. Which is? A nature preserve. I just like the Russian. Studies show that along with the new forest growth, mammals, birds, and fish are still returning to the area as it continues to recover. I heard that the mosquito population never had any kind of uh, decline. (laughs) Oh, well, mosquitoes are are a hardy, hardy beast. Yeah, but everyone who goes there, the first thing they talk about is the mosquitoes. They're like the size of hummingbirds. mm -hmm. (laughs) They carry off small children. Um, So the (laughs) mosquitoes are great. And that is the story of the mysterious and incredibly creepy Tunguska event. Well, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed, or just shame us publicly. And you know you do. <laughs> Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Uh, speaking of getting things wrong, oh, did we okay. get any... Do we have anything to apologize for this week? Uh, not that I've heard, uh, other than my, okay. my, my terrible pronunciation of German. Oh, well, we're just going to... I see your terrible German, and I, I raise you raise with my terrible Russian. 
<laughs> so feel free. That's all right. I'm continuing with, with languages I'm bad at next week. So, Oh, boy. Uh, that is a great segue. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. Every week, I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> no, this, this, is a, this is a bad one. Um, so, well, we haven't talked about coal mining in a while, and the absolutely absolutely devastating effects that it can have um, mm -hmm. on, on the miners and on the ground around it. Uh, mm -hmm. And also, I haven't done a story set in Wales yet. And I, I love the Welsh. Uh, but this is mm -hmm. a very, very sad, upsetting, and uh, enraging story because every step along the way, if mm -hmm. people had just done the thing that they either said they were going to do or the precaution that they were supposed to take mm. then over a hundred children would still have been alive we are going to talk next week about the Aberfan disaster